it goes back to a little bit ago, you were talking about, you know, managing symptoms or trying to trying to eradicate symptoms. And I think that is kind of the biggest issue that I'm seeing in our field right now, that every symptom is like the end of the world to people. And, you know, if they're experiencing depression right now, that means like, oh my gosh, I have to run out and get a pill from the doctor to get rid of this because I don't want to feel this way. When really, you know, some degree of discomfort is good for us to have now and then. And, you know, using it as more of a tool of, you know, okay, well, why am I feeling this way? And where is it coming from? And how can I work through it? Or how can I figure out a different way to do the things that are present in my life right now versus just wanting to get rid of symptoms? You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Before we begin today's episode, I have a couple of exciting announcements I don't want you to miss out on. Number one, the film I am proud to be a part of, Affirmation Generation, is now available. This film does an incredible job of exposing the gender crisis, and we want it to reach therapists, doctors, parents, teachers, politicians, and anyone in a position to care. You can stream our early access edition of this film online anytime, as well as watch the trailer, learn more, or donate to the film at affirmationgenerationmovie.com. Number two, I've started a new private online community for listeners of this podcast. You can find it at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. This new offering fulfills several needs. Over the past year, my reach has grown exponentially, and while it delights me to know that my podcast is now in the top 2.5% globally, the matching rise in the amount of emails and DMs I receive has been overwhelming. It's simply too much for one person to handle, and while I care about my listeners, staring at a screen piping words at them for free feeds neither my stomach nor my soul. I had to create some kind of filter to make my engagement feel sustainable and nourishing to me. And fortunately, this is exactly what Locals was designed to do for independent content creators like myself. When you join my Locals community as a supporting member for $8 a month, you get to submit questions that I will answer in members-only Q&A live streams. I'm also considering offering behind-the-scenes early access to new podcasts as they're being recorded. Plus, of course, you get to meet light-minded people who share your interests in an online environment that's free of ads, bullies, and trolls. With Locals, you also get to choose how much you reveal about yourself on your profile so you can be undercover or out in the open. And you get to select whether your posts in my community are visible to anyone who drops by or only to other committed members. If you'd like to support me at a higher level, you can become a premium member for $24 a month, which allows you to privately message me, and I will prioritize responding to premium members' direct messages. I think this is a great solution that is designed to meet everyone's needs. 
Although we are just getting started and this community is currently small and new, we've already got some great people on board, including thoughtful therapists, concerned parents, and free-thinking, politically homeless people. Please come along and check out my growing community at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. You can get your first month free with promo code GRANDFATHER. Make the most of your trial membership by asking a question in the latest Q&A thread, and I will provide a live-streamed answer you can join me for or watch later. What have you got to lose? All right, now on to today's episode. Today, my guest is Tessa Jacques. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist based in California. You might know her from Instagram, where she's at the Uncensored Therapist. Tessa has an interesting Instagram profile. I was very curious to find out that this is actually the first time she's coming on a podcast because she has so much great content. You would think that people would be interviewing her left and right. So it's an honor and a pleasure to have uh, to be the first person to host Tessa on a podcast. Welcome, Tessa. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So we were chatting before we started recording and find out we actually we graduated the same year from our counseling programs. In 2013, we both got our master's degrees and both in California as well. Uh, so we've been practicing for 10 years each. And I'm curious, what what are some of the changes that you've observed in the counseling profession just in the 10 years that, that you've been practicing? Um, well, I feel like it's always been pretty liberal leaning as far as just the, the uh industry as a whole. Um, but it has really gotten a lot more aggressively left, if I could even like emphasize it that much, um, to the extent of, you know, any difference in opinion or thought is shut down, you know, straight from the the master's programs that are training new therapists. How has that changed your experience as a therapist with regard to how patients approach you, what their expectations are of a therapist or the counseling process? I think that it has definitely made me um, be a lot more thorough in kind of my vetting of new clients and just in the sense that not that I need everybody to, you know, kind of think the way that I do, uh, the opposite, but just that I'm really looking for, you know, whether somebody is going to be sensitive to even kind of some pushback on like perspective and things like that. And that's, you know, my biggest emphasis is I'm, I'm just helping people to see things in a different way. And if they're not open to that, then that's just not going to be a good fit. Mm. Uh, that makes sense that you feel the need to look for that a bit more because it seems like there is this increasing push to um, sort of relegate the role of the therapist to just being someone who strokes the patient's ego, for lack exactly. of a better term. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think is driving that? Well, I think there's obviously like this huge, you know, societal push to affirming everything and validating everything and really just, you know, um, influencing people to be seeking like happiness versus to be, you know, owning their own stuff or responsible for where they're at in their own lives. Part of that happiness versus responsibility or Mm -hmm. 
but I would say not not responsibility just for its own sake, but because of its role in a deeper sense of meaning, which is so much deeper and longer lasting than happiness. Do you think it has to do with the sort of culture of instant gratification? For sure. Yeah, I think that plays a huge part. So you say that the field has become more um, aggressively left-leaning. Now, I think you said that you yourself are conservative and have always been, right? Which mm-hmm. I, I say it's like a rare breed in terms of a therapist in California, born and raised conservative. Absolutely. Uh, you know, when I when I first got into counseling, I was very far left-leaning politically. And so were most of the people I was working with. And I think um, I had certain experiences that humbled me in terms of my sort of lack of cultural competency. I think that was a big blind spot. And so I want to maybe sort of explore cultural competency because if you ask um, left-leaning therapists, I think most would agree that cultural competency is a a major value that they hold and, and something that they would expect of all competent therapists. And yet, I think if we're doing cultural competency work diligently, we are humbled by our own blind spots. Like I'm thinking of this experience that I had in community college. Um, Back in my first couple years of college, I had this really great uh, cultural anthropology class. And my teacher, I wish I could remember her name. She was this older lady, about 60, with long white hair. And she had had an interesting life. She had studied tribes in remote parts of the world. And she recounted this story from earlier in her teaching career where a student came to her and said, I have um, a cultural group for you to study. And she said, oh yeah, what? He said, the LAPD. And she immediately went to a place of so much judgment because of her left-leaning politics. And she caught herself and she realized, wow, I really have a lot of preconceived notions about this cultural group, huh? That is antithetical to my value system as a cultural anthropologist. Maybe I should check that out. And thus began a 20-year study, ethnography, of the Los Angeles Police Department um, by this awesome teacher that I had. She ended up writing a book about the LAPD as well as marrying a cop, (laughs) which she never thought she would do getting into it. In fact, some of her earliest experiences to learn about the LAPD, she had to hang out in the bars where the cops drank a lot to earn their trust. And a lot of cops thought that she was trying to date a cop and that was not at all where she was coming from. So that one really snuck up on her. But um, she was such a great instructor and I remember taking a valuable lesson from that. And so I think that that lesson sort of came back to me at various points in my own counseling career where I realized that I had some blind spots, right? That I care deeply about, you know, cultural competency with this perceived marginalized group and that ethnic minority and this, you know, religion from the other side of the planet. But at some point I realized I actually lack cultural competency with conservative Christian Americans. That was a a community I had had very little exposure to. And I found myself saying things sort of offhandedly in a casual manner about conservative Christian Americans that were actually not informed by experience that I experiences I'd personally had with conservative Christian Americans, but had had with talking to other people who were, you know, urban, liberal atheists, for example, who had certain preconceived notions of conservative Christian Americans. And you just can't do that when you're a therapist because you you have to be able to work with whoever's coming to you for whatever they're coming to you 
with. I mean, there are, of course, limits. There are times that we should refer out if it's not a good fit or if, you know, we lack the, you know, specialized knowledge that would really benefit someone with a particular condition. But in general, we need to be ready to greet most people with an open mind. And so I, I had these experiences and I helped, I feel like they they helped me mature quite a bit. But it concerns me to see this trend in our field of left-leaning therapists who have many of the same biases that I had, who feel justified in those biases and don't feel like they have any kind of professional obligation to challenge them. So, you know, I see you nodding. I I take it you probably (laughs) see many of the same things. What's it been like for you as a conservative therapist in California um, to be amongst your peers in the counseling profession? Uh, I think it has definitely become almost a scary place to be able to like be yourself if you are in a certain demographic, right? And it's maybe the intent to begin with was good, right? That everybody should try to kind of challenge themselves and get outside of our own experience and understand other people. But what we see is that there's, there's, no emphasis on that when it does come to, you know, Caucasian Christian Americans, right? Um, And the experience that you described and from your teacher as well, that point where you realize that there might be a blind spot here, and then you challenge yourself to, you know, kind of push through that and learn a little more and be open-minded. I think that's where we're we're missing that piece in most therapists and, you know, maybe most people right now. You say it almost feels scary at times. Are there any particular stories that come to mind that you'd be comfortable sharing? Um, I'm not sure any stories in particular. I just feel like the, um, definitely the climate of kind of, social and politically where we've been in the past few years um, and seeing when people speak out or people, you know, are open about their opinions and seeing kind of the canceling that has gone on. That's what makes it scary. Right. And especially, you know, kind of being beholden to a, you know, an entity of the state that has the power to make or break your career if for some reason, you know, they found a reason to take your license away. Yeah, definitely. It's concerning to see how these, um, you know, governing bodies have become so biased. And, you know, you mentioned Caucasian conservatives in the the United States, but I want to say one of the first experiences I had that shook me out of my bubble was, um, I would say, just to respect confidentiality. It was not a white person who uh, I remember the first thing out of this person's mouth. I won't share any identifying information, but but it was, are you a believer? Um, that was a time that I realized, oh, wow, I, I actually don't know how to respond to this. And of course, I just wasn't the right fit because that person was looking for a Christian therapist specifically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are, there are people who are trained in Christian counseling and hold that as their personal faith. Um, 
So I want to ask from your perspective, what are some sort of common misconceptions? Because it seems like to be conservative is very easily vilified, um, both in, in places where you would expect that and in places where you would expect a, a more dignified <laughs> manner, such as in professional counseling circles. So as you've run into those sort of preconceived notions that people have, what are some typical things that people get wrong or fail to understand about those who identify as politically conservative? Um, I think just in general, it's kind of portrayed that conservatives are closed-minded and judgmental and, you know, like judge anybody who doesn't live in maybe the specific way that a conservative might. Um, but I have found the exact opposite because, you know, it's, it's really like pushed out there that um, people that are more liberal leaning are just, you know, accepting and tolerant and more open-minded and really that doesn't seem to be the case because if you have, you know, a different opinion, then you're made out to be kind of this, you know, bad person, right? It's, it turns very personal at that point. And I just don't see that from actually, you know, my experience with conservative people were just, you know, live and let live. Like we don't have to agree, but that's not the way that I choose to live. And um, so I really find that it's being portrayed as the exact opposite. Mm. And what do you think drives that sort of sense that it's okay to crucify people, um, to, to name call and almost like treat people as less than human on the basis of their conservative political beliefs? Um, I mean, I can't speak necessarily to what's driving individuals to behave in that way, but I think just, you know, as a whole, um, our society is really pushing towards this need to be um, validated and, and that happiness comes with everybody kind of agreeing. And so maybe there's some fear there that if there's dissenting opinions, then that's going to disrupt that kind of utopia that we're headed towards. Mm. Well, when you put it that way, it's kind of easier to imagine. Like if, if I, if I am strongly convinced that I'm on the right side of history and that if everyone shares my beliefs, we will create a perfect world, then I can imagine getting pretty irate with anyone who feels like they're in the way of that. Sure. So for those who haven't seen your Instagram, tell us about the sort of content that you're putting out. So I'm trying to kind of put out some, a mental health aspect, but more so just kind of pushing the, um, or unveiling kind of the, the hidden agendas that are, you know, within the industry um, and within just our culture as a whole right now. Um, definitely just pushing back on 
kind of these norms that are are being applied to everybody that you know everyone has to think the same way and kind of why some of these things are being pushed in such a way and what kind of responses are you getting so i actually i was really nervous to get started with this even though it's like been personally something that i you know have talked about for a very long time um but I was nervous to kind of attach my name to, you know, kind of publicly putting things out. And I have received the exact opposite response than I was expecting. I really thought that I was going to get a lot of pushback and a lot of, you know, name calling and people trying to shut me up. And what I've received is uh, mainly people who are telling me that it's so refreshing to hear this perspective from a therapist um, and also hearing from other professionals who are saying that they've been scared to say the same things, but that they completely agree. If you were to come to me as a client and tell me you were feeling grumpy, irritable, lethargic, stressed out, or unfocused, I'd want to do a thorough assessment of your lifestyle. And one of the first elements we'd look at is the quality and quantity of your sleep. You need at least a good seven hours of refreshing sleep every night in order to be your best self. There are many things that can get in the way of that. A demanding job, a new baby, or just plain bad habits, for example. But if you're having difficulty falling or staying asleep for the simple reason that you're too hot, you're too cold, or you and your partner don't agree on the temperature, look no further. I have just the thing for you. And since this is not therapy, but a podcast, I can actually sell you stuff. So I'm going to genuinely recommend that you check out the Pod Pro Cover by 8Sleep. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. Personally, I have mine set to run on autopilot so that my bed is warm when I get in, cool in the middle of the night, and warm again when it's time to wake up. I sleep very soundly this way. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being, the quality of your work, and the lives of the people you touch. So go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout for up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And to my listeners around the world, 8Sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the United Kingdom, select countries in the European Union, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. Seems like there's there's a lot of that sort of, um, and I'm forgetting the word for it, but, well, a, a related concept is preference falsification. Like we have a lot of people who are sort of claiming publicly to hold certain views because that's what they think is expected of them, but then privately holding back certain views. And then, you know, someone like you comes forth and, and, you know, we probably hear from some of the same people or we get some of the same types of messages. And I, I hope that those, you know, I hope that what you're saying right now is encouraging for other therapists, the the type who reach out to you and me saying that they appreciate our work, but that they're afraid of getting their heads chopped off. How have you navigated the sort of the uncharted territory we're in with regard to therapist self-disclosure? 
because you and I went to school at the same time. We both graduated in 2013. And while social media did exist, of course, 10 years ago, um, the landscape has been ever evolving. And, you know, some of the teachings that I was given in grad school was from people who'd been in practice a long time and therefore their whole careers developed before the age of social media. So I feel like we're in this kind of uncharted territory where a lot of the ethical guidelines that are dated, you know, from 20 or 30 years ago about therapist self-disclosure don't really, they don't give us a lot of guidance for the age of social media because back when those laws were written, 99% of therapists were only known to a few hundred people. And, um, you know, there were a handful of therapists who became well-known for their books that they wrote, or, you know, maybe you, you have the Dr. Phil's of the world, but, but other than that, you know, and whereas now there are so many of us who are professionally LMFTs like you and I, or LPCs, LCSWs, CITES, you name it, and who also has something to say on the internet, whether it's that they're marketing their podcast or they have a podcast like me, or, you know, they're promoting their book or a training or coaching course that they've put together, or they just have a public presence where they want to participate in the dialogue and whether organically or done in a more structured or focused way, they acquire a following. Um, Do you feel like there is any sort of shared understanding right now? Or are we in this kind of no man's land with regard to therapist self-disclosure on the internet? How do you navigate that? And how would you advise people to navigate it if they're sort of sitting back watching people like you and me? Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that we're in kind of this no man's land where we just have to maybe be the trailblazers and figure out how to find that balance. Um, but I also, um, so I had the most wonderful law and ethics teacher in my master's program. And I feel like that kind of influenced me to push back on that, um, you know, kind of general rule that self-disclosure is bad. And in my practice, I mean, over the last 10 years, I've, anecdotally seen that self-disclosure can be so incredibly powerful and helpful sometimes in work with clients. So that piece um, maybe wasn't even as much of a barrier for me in in coming into the social media realm. Um, more so, you know, just kind of that that feeling of like, you know, being vulnerable, like people seeing kind of the real me, that's different. Um, but as far as like self-disclosure with clients, like I'm pretty comfortable with that to an extent. So I think it's really, you know, for people, you know, kind of moving forward. And if they want to get into this type of like in the social media realm, you just have to, you know, find what fits for you and kind of what feels like it might be, you know, a natural progression along those lines. Mm. I realize we're actually talking about two different things when we talk about self-disclosure, because we're talking about self-disclosure to the world and, Mm. you know, how much room there is for a therapist to be a person with opinions on the internet. 
And then there's self-disclosure to clients. And I think about how rules are helpful until you have mastered them and you understand why those rules exist. Sort of like Chesterton's fence with regard to boundaries, right? That if there's a fence and you don't know why it's there, you should probably find out why someone thought that there needed to be a fence there before you go ahead and decide to take that fence down. Once you understand the purpose of the fence, then you can decide if you still need it. Same thing with rules, guidelines, and boundaries of various kinds. When you have that deeply integrated sense of professional ethics and competency, then you see how the sort of standard rules do or do not apply in a certain situation. And I think with regard to self-disclosure that we're generally taught to err on the side of caution because there are a lot of things that can derive inappropriate self-disclosure. And that's where awareness of our countertransference is really important. You know, do I want to share this because I need to feel seen by my client? If so, what's up with that? You know, or do I want to share this because I want to feel, um, you know, there's just so many different reasons to be skeptical or vigilant toward our desire to self-disclose, but that doesn't always mean that it's coming from a bad place. Right. So I, that's one of those things where I proceed with caution in the context of individual therapy. I'm thinking about a, a particular situation where I self-disclose, and of course, I'm not going to share the details. Um, but I remember it was a situation where the client was going through something in their life that I went through something very similar a few years prior. And there had been several sessions where I didn't say anything about my own personal history. And then there came a point where I was like, I kind of feel like it would be helpful. And so I asked, would it be okay if I share something personal? And the client said, yes, go ahead. And I said, okay, so I've been through something similar and here's you know, the long and short of it. And here's what I personally learned from that process. And I don't know if any of this is helpful to you, but that client said, actually, that was really helpful to hear. Um, so I think moments like that, you know, it's just about proceeding with caution and having good awareness of our own motives, what could be happening in the transference and countertransference, how the self-disclosure could affect the client, because self-disclosure can affect the client in any number of ways. It can change their perception of you, can alter their sense of how professional you are or how much you, you've, you're holding a professional container for them. Um, it can make them feel obligated to hold space for you as a therapist. And different clients are going to respond differently. You know, some people could hear the same thing from you and just take it in a helpful way. Others could feel like, oh, now I know this thing about her and now I have to, now I have to think of what to say, <laughs> you know? So, um, so there's just all these kind of nuances, but, but if you've mastered the reason for the rule, then you can proceed with caution. Whereas if you're a neophyte, then you should probably just hold back and take it to right. supervision, right? Um, but, but then there's the issue of therapist self-disclosure on the internet. And I think that's, that's one of these things where it's like you and I and any other therapist with a public presence has to walk, we have to walk this line of being human and being professional and trusting that there's enough room that we can sort of be all of it at once and that there's a certain amount of our humanity or our opinions or value judgments on things that that it is safe to reveal 
without threatening or jeopardizing the sense of whether we can do our jobs. And I do feel like there's a lot of expectations that come up the moment someone has a public presence on the internet and is a therapist. I feel like some people tend to project the assumption that whatever you do should reflect on the nature of your work as a therapist, right? Which it's like, no, there are certain things that if you go to a certain extreme, you know, if you say something really concerning during your off hours, then there is a line that could get crossed where that maybe could say something about your competency as a therapist. But at the same time, when you're in this public sphere, you both are and are not a therapist because on the one hand, you're Tessa LMFT, Stephanie LMFT. On the other hand, people following you on Instagram are not your clients. Right. So it seems like some people sort of hang back and they default to just hiding from the world. and But then there's dangers in that too, because what about their own self-actualization? What about their creative fulfillment, their ability to find like-minded people on the internet and enjoy the benefits of that like anyone else? Um, so how do you walk that line? Where do you feel like the balance is for you personally? I mean, I think that I try to kind of stay with the content of, you know, the message that I'm trying to put out there, but also, you know, with any type of relationship that you're having, like there's some give and take, right? So trying to kind of put a little bit of like me personally into that without it being like full disclosure, right? I read some quote recently that was about the role of a coach, not about a therapist, but a I appreciated it. It was something like a coach is someone who can give instruction without creating resentment. And this was just coming to mind because I was thinking about what you said earlier with regard to how you feel like you need to sort of screen your clients for their motives or expectations of therapy and their openness to pushback. Um, so how, how do you, um, what do you think helps strengthen or establish these types of healing relationships where we're trusted and we're allowed in to give that feedback that actually helps someone grow without it being perceived as too much of a blow to the ego. Because earlier I was sort of talking about how it seems like there's this increasing expectation that a therapist is just someone who's there to stroke your ego, to sort of reward your false sense of self and give you this instant gratification to help you stay complacent. Um, but you know, how do we, what do you feel like helps maintain that right balance where it's neither that nor, um, too much of an, an attack or assault on the ego? What allows someone to let you into that sort of mentor role? I don't know if mentor is the right word, but you know, someone they trust to give them corrective guidance. Right. I think, Kind of a a little nugget that I have held on to from master's program um, was that the vast majority of the progress that a client is going to make in therapy is dependent upon the relationship that you're having with them, right? So my main focus always with clients is establishing that relationship. And I think that's where a lot of these things, you know, come into play, some self-disclosure, some, you know, just 
really being upfront and honest from the beginning and, you know, also acknowledging that it's a two-way street. You have to be as much of a good fit for me as I need to be for you and being maybe confident enough to know that if that's not a good fit, then I'm okay with that. And, you know, and so from day one, that being the basis of our relationship, I think really helps to get to that place where someone can hear that feedback or I know kind of how much I can push and how, you know, where the line is, where it's going to be not received well, um, because we have, you know, that give and take relationship. And I, you know, I know that about my clients where, where I can say things and, and how much is too much. Right. So you brought up a point that reminded me of a a Twitter exchange I was just having the other day about the term evidence-based therapy. And I responded that evidence-based therapy is a misleading phrase because what the evidence actually tells us is exactly as you said, Tessa, that the strength of the relationship between the client and the therapist is actually the biggest factor in determining how successful the outcome of that therapy will be. Um, <laughs> how, how do you feel about the term evidence-based therapy? It's, I, it's not my favorite, right? When somebody comes and they, you know, are specifically asking for CBT or something, something else that's deemed evidence-based, I'm immediately like, I might not be the person for you. And why is that? Uh, Because I just don't, I don't think that we can put treatment into a box in that way of saying this is, these are the only techniques that I'm going to use because somebody along the line said that this is what is evidence-based. My evidence is that when I'm, you know, seeing client over a period of time and I can see the change and I can see, you know, that they've gotten closer to their goals or they're working through things like that's, that's my evidence. So. Yeah. I, um, I feel uncomfortable with those types of requests too. And I'm trying to put my finger on why, I mean, partly I already said it, but beyond that, it's sort of like, You know, if someone's coming to you looking specifically, as you said, for CBT or DBT or whatever it is, it seems like there's kind of an underlying assumption that that's something that they could get from any therapist who practices that modality, sort of like um, acupuncture. I don't know. If you go to one acupuncturist, you're going to receive acupuncture. If you go to another acupuncturist, you're also going to receive acupuncture, but they might have different approaches. They might have different ways of reading you, but still like there is a process whereby need, um, you know, I'm not sure if this is the best analogy. I'm I'm trying to think of like, what is a better analogy? Um, you know, I'm trying to think like when it comes to body work, deep tissue massage, again, every therapist is going to be different, but it's all approximately the same thing compared to, let's say, Thai massage. Okay. Those are very different modalities. In deep tissue massage, you are on a table and the therapist is doing all the work. Thai massage, you're basically holding yoga poses while you get adjusted and massaged. So 
Um, you know, I, I guess the, my, my point in saying this is that although massage therapists and acupuncturists are different, there is sort of something a lot more tangible there in terms of that you, you can expect that you're going to receive something that looks approximately like this. And I just have a harder time imagining that for psychotherapy because it is, it's not physical. It's not tangible. It's, it's an abstract subjective process and it's a relational process, you know, and, and I think that relational piece, of course, the relationship matters for massage therapy too. If your massage therapist makes you feel nurtured and seen and comfortable, that's going to feel way different than one whose personality rubs you the wrong way. Right. But, but I still think that therapy being this relational process that it is one CBT therapist and another CBT therapist are going to have, they're just going to affect the patient so differently because of, if nothing else, personality fit, energetic fit. But beyond that, I think the role of genuineness is really important here too, you know, and and that's one of the core principles of person-centered therapy, according to Carl Rogers, is genuineness. And I talk about this a lot because I feel like therapists are being asked to lie um, with regard to how we address gender. And you can't ask a therapist to be less than genuine with their client without eroding part of the foundation of therapy. So I'm really concerned about that. Um, so I think when it comes to something like CBT or DBT or whatever it is, maybe it's, it's, maybe that's what rubs me the wrong way about the expectation is that, that it's the same, just as long as you follow these certain rules, as long as you go by these steps, the client's going to have the same outcome. Doesn't really matter who they see. And while I could see an advantage of considering it that way, because then, you know, if you're a client going to therapy with those expectations, then maybe you're not expecting too much of the individual therapist. Maybe you're saying, okay, as long as you teach me how to correct my faulty cognitions, I'll take it from there. Therapist, that's all I need. Great. I mean, well, but then in that case, you know, like an AI chatbot could help you with that. One of these CBT apps could help you with that. So it's hard to to rule out the role of the relationship and and the importance of fit. So I did bring this up up this point about genuineness. And I'm curious about your comments on the role of genuineness in therapy and whether you've seen any sort of changes with how our field sees that over time or where you think our field is currently at with genuineness and how you personally relate to it in your practice. Uh I you cut out just a tiny bit. So I lost the first half of that oh, question. Sorry. Yeah, That's no, okay. I just wanted to kind of open the door to you to comment on the importance of genuineness in therapy and where you feel like you're at with that, but also where you see our, our field heading. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely identify with what you've said that a lot of therapists are, are almost, you know, having to lie in order to Kind of stay in that space of like affirmation for clients and and that's what people are expecting a lot of the time these days um so i think that it's kind of an integrity thing you know uh, for me being genuine is like that's i have to because i i just couldn't show up and sit in my chair for eight hours a day just not being true to me and not you know kind of dealing with the issues as I see, you know, they need to be dealt with, but just kind of going along and patting everybody on the back. 
Um, so I think it's really going to be an individual thing. There's going to be therapists who are just going to say like, can't do this. We have to, you know, do what's actually best for the client. And, and that is being genuine. And then there's going to be others that are just going to, you know, go with the status quo. And that's, that's a hard thing. When it comes to your own feeling, like you have to be true to yourself for you to be satisfied in life. I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but bear with me. I'm thinking of sort of a related concept of self-actualization, um, which, you know, was really important to Maslow. And I, I love these sort of older approaches to therapy that really dig into matters of meaning and purpose and existential stuff, because, you know, you can't just like cure depression. You you can't just take away symptoms, right? What is depression? It's actually, if you look at the symptoms of depression, it's not so much the presence of symptoms as the absence of certain life experiences. It's the absence of pleasure, motivation, interest, appetite, sex drive, sleep, and all of those things that make you feel alive. And so, you know, when people seek a cure for their mental health condition, they're looking for their distress to be taken away, but you can't just eradicate distress if there's an underlying source of emptiness. And so I don't really draw a line like a lot of people do, I think, between sort of the treatment of symptoms and the support of self-actualization. Because it could be that your depression, let's say, is a reflection of this unfulfilling life And the way out isn't through any amount of talk therapy or medication alone. It's actually that you need to radically change what you're doing with your life. Um, So then I think about the role of self-actualization in the life of the therapist. And this is one of those ways that I respond to these inquiries that we're talking about today that people like you and I get from people who are watching us and (laughs) sitting back quietly and sitting on their hands wondering if they should join the conversation. Um, I think about how self-actualization is important to me. It's an important part of living a fulfilling life. It's also practicing what I preach. And I think there are certain people for whom being a therapist and not having any other sort of career besides that or public presence beside that is adequate for them in terms of their self-actualization. And they also experience self-actualization in their personal life, through their hobby, their families, perhaps their their church maybe. Um, But I think there are also a lot of us more sort of creative types for whom uh, the path of self-actualization in our lives includes being a therapist, but it also includes having a voice in our community. And that's where we might feel that calling, like we have to listen to that voice. And for me, I guess the way that I sort of justify taking some of the risks I do with my public presence is that, well, you know, I I have to pursue my own self-actualization or else I wouldn't be practicing what I'm preaching. And I believe that it's ultimately beneficial to anyone who's coming to me for the right reasons if I'm also on my path taking care of myself, mind, body, and spirit. I guess that's, that's how I think about it. Um, how do you think about it? Yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, I would not be content with just 
Monday through Friday, sitting in my chair and, you know, doing the work. Um, I have to have like something else. That's just kind of always been my personality is I'm just, I like to have a lot of things going on at once. Um, and so whether that's, you know, volunteering with my kids activities or, you know, something else, there's just kind of always a lot going on. And that's how I feel like I'm, you know, fulfilling that need and yeah, for sex self-actualization. I completely agree. As a therapist, I've gotten an up-close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out, it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being, like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar. And it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving your cells the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. So Tessa, I wanted to share with you a question from my locals forum. And for context, in case listeners haven't heard this already, I do now have a community on locals. It's at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. It's only $8 a month to join and you can get your first month free with the promo code grandfather. Uh, I do receive more emails and DMs that I can keep up with from thoughtful people with engaging questions, uh, but I don't get paid to write emails all day. So if you want to help make my work feel joyful and abundant and sustainable for me, join my locals community. And there you can ask questions of future guests. You can also ask questions for weekly members only exclusive live streams. This was a question that was given to me for one of my live streams, and I did try to respond to it. In fact, I did respond to it in live stream number two within my locals community. But thinking about you and the work that you do and the opinions that you're outspoken about, Tessa, I think it's actually a better question for discussion with you. So I'm just going to go ahead and open this question back up from my locals community. So Christo said, please discuss your thoughts on the possibility that the recruitment of the psychotherapy profession to further a specific social change agenda is just one aspect of a much, much larger project that seeks to broadly include large swaths of commerce and industry in a national and international authoritarian imposition that is sold under promises of social justice, equity, and sustainability. 
as if that weren't <laughs> enough of a prompt, <laughs> he shares some additional background. Um, so he goes on to say, some, has, some have suggested that the counseling and psychotherapy profession in the United States, and perhaps elsewhere, has been recruited to serve as an agent of specific social change. The social change agenda has seemingly harnessed the university accreditation standards of organizations like the Council for the Accreditation of Counseling and Related Educational Programs, CACREP, to shape not only the clinical skills of emerging counselors and therapists, but their, pol their politics and values, all aligned with a specific agenda. But what if we step back and consider the possibility that such recruitment of the counseling profession is just a small part of a much larger project that seeks to recruit the broadest possible swath of commerce and industry to impose an agenda, which at the surface appears to promote highly respectable values like sustainability, equity, and justice, but under the surface imposes increasingly absolutist and authoritarian forces on our society and on the world. This one's for you, Tessa. Okay. <laughs> That's big. Yeah. Um, yeah. I honestly, I don't disagree with the, the premise of his question. I really think that there is a whole system of things working together in order to, you know, perpetuate this social change that we're seeing. And it started long before we even realized what was going on, right? Like that now we're at the point where we're like, hey, wait a second, like, how did we get here? And I mean, this has been in motion for a long time, in my opinion. Um, it really starts in the education system. You know, we are I mean, if we really want to like get into this deep topic, um, we're, you know, sending our kids to school, they're, you know, kind of going with the motions and just learning the whole like day in, day out system. And then we go to higher education where now we're seeing that universities are just, you know, so liberal and they're just all kind of driving in this one message and there's not a lot of freedom of different thought even back when i you know started my bachelor's in 2004 when i went away to school um it was it was present then feeling like oh my gosh there's you know there's all these clubs on campus and there's nothing really not a lot that represents kind of conservative thought or or just open-mindedness. Um, so yeah, I mean, we're just kind of creating this machine from the very beginning. And then of course that's going to lead to these cookie cutter people in certain industries. So, I mean, I personally, I think that he's right on. I think it's so hard to talk about these issues without being called a conspiracy theorist by some. Absolutely. Have you been called that before? Um, I mean, I would probably jokingly coin myself with that term, but I, I personally don't see it as a derogatory thing, but I think it's, yeah. I mean, a lot of people feel like they have to hide from being labeled as such. Mm. So that's not something that you shy away from. I don't think so. How do you take the power out of a phrase like that, which is so laden with negative insinuations? Um, well, I think the power is in 
your reaction to it, right? So if I'm not afraid of being called that, then there there is no power there. Mm. So how do you sort of walk the line or find the balance between, on the one hand, being, as you said, sort of a self-labeled, albeit in a lighthearted manner, a conspiracy theorist, somebody who thinks that maybe there is something nefarious going on um, and maybe it is planned and orchestrated on some level. How do you find the balance between that and also sound mental health not going into, let's say, paranoia or despair? Um, Well, I mean, if there is evidence rooted in reality, then I think that's kind of like the, you know, holding yourself to being open to maybe that there's other explanations out there, but, you know, not diving so far in that you're, you're going on the complete opposite of not being open to maybe that's not the case. Right. So, um, what, what is some of the most compelling evidence that you see that there's, there is something, um, let's say some, some malicious drivers behind the cultural trends that we are concerned with the ones that affect our profession, but also so many other areas of life. Sure. Um, so kind of the biggest thing that comes to mind with that is, um, just prescription medications that we see a lot of our clients are, you know, kind of having to go that route. Um, And there's so much evidence that this is not only not helping people, but it's actually like creating all these other side effects. So why are we still just allowing this to be, you know, the the biggest option for people who are experiencing mental health symptoms? Um, And I mean, how do we not come back from the conclusion that there's somebody that's profiting, profiting from it. And, you know, that is maybe driving it. Right. So zooming in on the pharmaceutical piece. Um, I mean, it's clear that the pharmaceutical industry profits greatly from having, having a population that's so dependent on them. Do you think that that is, I mean, the profit motive is, is certainly enough for us to just be concerned with the medicalization of a population. But do you see that as being connected with some of the other, let's say, cultural trends that you're concerned about? Like specifically? So let's let's just explore ways that things seem connected, right? So we have this sort of epidemic of over-medicalization and we have an industry that we know profits tremendously from that. And we also want to look at, well, who else benefits, right? So when it comes to benefit, we're talking about financial profit, but what other incentives are there to keep a population dependent in certain ways, right? Earlier, we were talking about instant gratification and how antithetical it is to the therapeutic process. Um, You know, recently, I think it was... Jonathan, what is it, Shelder or Shedler, I can never remember which, but was um, tweeting about sort of AI and chatbots 
and how they're like sex dolls and um, that humans need real relationships in order to heal and receive connection. And my, my concern when it comes to the ways that artificial technology is replacing human connection is that increasingly there are people who would prefer AI and chatbots and sex dolls and porn over real human connection, much in the same way that there are certain people who would prefer a therapist that's just going to stroke their ego and tell them what they want to hear in the short term, even if it means it prolongs their suffering in the long run, rather than see a therapist like you or I who's going to challenge them lovingly in the process of trying to help them get to the root cause of what's causing them to keep themselves stuck in cycles of suffering, right? So it's like you can't really separate out the culture of instant gratification from consumerism, from dependency on pharmaceuticals, from the trends that are undermining therapy and the pressure on therapists to affirm and stroke egos and um, rather than do the, the tough work that is really involved in helping people transform deep-rooted patterns of dysfunction in their lives. Right. Yeah. And I think it's so hard to separate just one of those issues. They think everything is very connected. Um, but really, you know, from what you were just saying, what resonated with me was just the, the aversion that people have right now to responsibility and to hard work, right? So it's definitely easier to go see a therapist that's going to stroke your ego versus to go see someone like you or I, who's going to actually, you know, be kind of trying to facilitate some work and change, that's hard. And it seems like people have grown so accustomed to things being easy and happiness being handed to them that hard work is just not something that they want to participate in. But, you know, the flip side of that and really, you know, the, the uh, unfortunate part of that is that this self-actualization that you and I are, you know, after is on the other side of that hard work. So people are really limiting themselves to not, you know, in the, in the hope for having this happiness, they're actually not ever going to get there because they're not willing to do what it takes. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com slash shop, where you will find goods and services I've personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. I've sometimes, in the right context, found myself saying to my patients, and again, relationship is everything. You don't say this to the wrong person in the wrong moment, but um, saying something like, your your resistance to discomfort here is is does not make you special. It is it is just the most ordinary human thing about you, and you have that in common with everyone else. That you know, we all prefer the path of least resistance. You know, we'd all um, rather have that instant comfort 
than get the long-term reward. But, um, but that's not a reason not to do it. In fact, I think it's, it's sort of the ordinariness of our sloth, of our tendency toward entropy. It's the ordinariness of it that should make it easier to eradicate. I mean, you can never fully eradicate, but to, but to combat it, right? Just, it's like we're in a constant war with gravity and entropy and aging. And ultimately those forces will win in the sense that we will age and our bodies will die. Um, But, you know, the tendency towards disorder is one of those things that just happens if you're not paying attention. Like, in, in your home, right? If you're not paying attention, things will inevitably get cluttered and disarrayed. Laundry and dishes will pile up. And so there is sort of just that daily work that is a part of life of keeping chaos at bay. And, and there's a certain amount of that required just to stay minimally functional. And then there's a greater degree required to achieve anything or, or transform or, or move. Um, so it just seems like, I don't know, that there's this tendency to sort of catastrophize it or make it a bigger deal than it is, you know, or, or in some people to act like it makes you special. Um, like, like, oh, I don't want to, that's hard. That's difficult. I'd rather do this. It's like, yeah, you and everyone else, but you know, but the good news is that since we're all at war with chaos and entropy, um, the same things that help other people keep them at bay are likely to help you as well. Doesn't mean that you're going to have the same level of exercise tolerance as someone who's been working out every day. You start where you're at. Um, But I guess that's sort of my thinking about it. Yeah. And actually just to, you know, kind of emphasize on what you said about people, you know, catastrophizing these like issues in their lives. Um, it goes back to a little bit ago, you were talking about, you know, managing symptoms or trying to, trying to eradicate symptoms. And I think that is kind of the biggest issue that I'm seeing in our field right now. Um, that every symptom is like the end of the world to people. And, you know, if they're experiencing, depression right now. That means like, oh my gosh, I have to run out and get a pill from the doctor to get rid of this because I don't want to feel this way. When really, you know, some degree of discomfort is good for us to have now and then. And, you know, using it as more of a tool of, you know, okay, well, why am I feeling this way? And where is it coming from? And how can I, you know, work through it? Or how can I figure out a different way to do the things that are present in my life right now um, versus just wanting to get rid of symptoms. Mm-hmm. Do you think, do you think some of the origins of that are in parenting because mm-hmm. children look to their parents for guidance as to how to interpret the world and how to interpret what they're feeling. And, you know, the first time you ever skin a knee or get a paper cut, it is scary and painful. If you, right. if you haven't had that experience 50 times, you don't know how bad it's going to get, how long it's going to last, what it means, right? So it's it's up to the parent to comfort the child with the skin knee or the paper cut to, 
you know, on the one hand, give them sympathy and affection and love and comfort, but on the other hand, to send the signal that this is no big deal, this is just a little boo-boo and we're just gonna bandage it right up and take a five minute break, you know? It's it's like kids need that context from their parents to understand what is and is not a big deal, what kind of response is appropriate. Um, Do you think that there are any sort of parenting trends in our culture that are affecting how patients show up, even if it's 20 or 30 years later, um, catastrophizing the, let's say, mental despair in their lives? Yeah. I mean, just kind of with that that visual that you gave, you know, not even allowing kids to get to the point of having their first skin pain, right? I think parents are kind of on this trend of just trying to eliminate discomfort, eliminate pain for their kids. And that is doing such a disservice because we're not teaching them any coping skills with that, right? If you fall off your bike and hurt yourself, that's going to teach you something for the next time. So if we're eliminating those experiences of discomfort or pain for our kids, then they're not learning the lessons that they need. And then down the line, right, this is what we're perpetuating is this generation that cannot handle discomfort of any kind. I'm also remembering a time it was, it was the simplest little act of parenting that I witnessed, but it, it stuck with me. It was, um, I remember witnessing a parent who had high anxiety trying to raise a baby and the baby um, showed a sign of fear, like a small sign of fear in a new environment. And I remember the parent going, ooh, scary, as if they were trying to be empathetic. They were trying to mirror their child's emotions as if this was like helping build emotional intelligence. And I just remember thinking, no, that is not the right message to say. Like, of of course, the baby is going to show some degree of fear and exposure to a new environment because that's what babies do. But it's your job as the parent to model to the child that this is a safe environment, not to amplify the fear. And I think that 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 one little exchange that I witnessed then that's always stuck in my mind, I feel like that shows up in lots of different ways. And it's it's sort of in, in keeping with this theme, uh, like in gender ideology, this idea of following the child's lead. Do you feel like people are, they're trying to be empathetic as parents? They think that that's what's going to help raise emotionally intelligent or empathetic kids. But in the process, they're just kind of mirroring and amplifying kids distressed emotions without doing their job of sort of helping the kids build emotion regulation? Um, yes, but I also think that it's, um, you know, we're, we all bring something from our childhoods, right? And so what I see is that people are focusing on the wrong thing that they're trying to minimize from what, whatever they didn't like from their childhood. So, you know, if your parent yelled a lot, right? So then they're focusing on that piece of like, okay, well, I'm not going to yell at my kids versus kind of trying to dig deeper and figure out what the actual, you know, issue was that they didn't 
appreciate or didn't didn't carry them to the place that they want to be. And so they're, you know, they're kind of going surface level and then they're putting this onto their kids and it's having not the the response that they were hoping for. Mm. And there is always that tendency to try to, I mean, it's, it's a, such a noble thing to want to give your kids sure. a better childhood than, than you had. And it's what most caring parents do. And, and there's also that tendency to sort of swing the pendulum in the opposite direction. Like a lot of people whose parents right. were, they experienced their parents as too strict or as never listening to them. And then they end up giving their kids so much free reign that the kids don't know boundaries and the importance of limits. And, right. um, and I certainly don't mean to sort of head down that path of blaming the parents. I'm just more sort of analyzing the culture at large and how we ended up getting so off track, even sometimes with the best of intentions, parents coming from a place of loving their kids, wanting to raise them well, and ending up um, sort of not providing the basic structure that their kids need in the process to form a solid emotional foundation. I would say like another similar trend is just all the emphasis on emotional literacy, I think actually has us rather emotionally illiterate because there's just so much sort of encouragement of this faux navel gazing and endless self-analysis. It's like this quasi-therapy speak that's become so popular in the culture. And yet, um, I think as a byproduct, that cultural trend ends up just encouraging people to ruminate and to think about themselves too much. And thinking about yourself isn't really good for your mental health. It's better to get out of your head, be interested in other people in the world. Right. Was there anything else that you had wanted to talk about or maybe some anything from earlier that you'd wanted to follow up on? I think just, you know, really hoping to kind of get the message out there to, especially to other therapists, that we don't have to just continue down the same path um, and we can kind of carve out our own. And it oftentimes is going to feel even more fulfilling if you're doing things the way that, you know, feels truthful for you. And I hear in you trust that things will work out, that the right clients will find you, the wrong clients might leave you, but that's okay because maybe they'll go on to find the right person for them, or maybe that wasn't going to be the best use of your energy. It seems like it's worked out well for you. So I think um, you and I have both been practicing 10 years. You said it's only been about six months since you um, came out to the world on Instagram with the presence that you have there. So how has your um, experience as a therapist shifted? Have you had many clients come to you through there? Um, I actually have had people reach out, you know, requesting. Um, I'm actually not currently taking new clients. So that has not been, you know, something that has transpired over this, but definitely, you know, the response has been positive. And so I feel like if, if it were kind of something that I was hoping for out of this, then absolutely that potential would be there. Well, I think that's encouraging for anyone who's thinking about taking a leap as well. Have you had any, um, and you don't have to share if this would compromise anyone's confidentiality, but I'm also curious if you've ever been in a situation where somebody you were seeing in therapy then discovered you on social media and if they had a reaction to that. I'm not sure. Um, it's definitely possible. Not that I'm aware of yet, though. But it's 
it's something that, you know, it comes to mind and I wonder, um, I, I'm not sure how that reaction would be. We are not taking new patients right now, but if you were, who would you be open to seeing? Because there might be some people listening to this maybe six months from now who are interested in working with you. Um, My main focus in my practice personally is um, with moms. So postpartum, prenatal, I kind of work with the range and that feels like kind of my, the best fit population for me. Um, But my practice sees everybody. So I'll have to pick your, your brain sometime when I want more information on uh, postpartum and prenatal mental health as well, because that's, yeah. that's a topic in and of itself that we didn't explore today. Uh, but thank you so much. So uh, remind people where they can find you. Um, I'm on Instagram at the uncensored therapist. All right. Tessa, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at sometherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.